podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of Wagon Wheel on Spotify Live, not Spotify Green Room. They've changed it. It was Locker Room, then it was Green Room, and now it's Spotify Live. I look forward to the next name change of Spotify. Give this. If you're listening, obviously, on Red Inca on the podcast feed, or you're watching me on YouTube, well, what a treat for your eyes this is. Me sitting down in a chair. Although, if it makes you feel better, 10 seconds ago, I had to put together my entire desk because I took it apart and then realized I had to record this live. Huge thanks again to the sponsors. Uh, Manscaped, if you use the code REDINCA, you get 20% off and free worldwide shipping. Thanks to Sports Social for hooking us up with ads. If you don't want to hear the ads, though, of course, the best way to go about that is to support us on Patreon, where you get an ad-free podcast and you get all sorts of other things. In fact, you also get the opportunity to ask questions first on this podcast if you go at the first class level or above, like James has. James says... There's a lot of talk about Anderson, Broad, and Burns causing problems in Australia. Are you able to say what that really means or how it affected the team? I don't know about the Burns one, I'll be honest. I mean, I've heard about it, but I don't really know any details. Anderson and Broad for me was, I think, there was a definite split of opinion over, well, they, they wanted to play every test, right? And they've taken a thousand wickets between them. Is that right? A thousand? They've taken a lot of wickets between them. It must be a thousand. And... I, you know, they didn't understand what was going on. To be honest, England, baff, you know, sort of bum, bumbled around with that. You know, the original thinking was fine, but then when the injuries came in and they didn't particularly handle that well. So um, I think that caused disharmony within the team, but there was way bigger problems than that all the way through. Obviously, Graham thought was a big issue. Um, I think there are other issues in the setup of the England team as well. But yeah, I think, I think it essentially came down to grumpiness, voicing their frustration, not everyone being on the same page. Um, but part of that has to come down to, you know, England as well, because they did that. Uh, Will says, we talk a lot about players becoming more specialists in particular formats, but it seems to me that it's starting to happen with cricket too. I'm not sure if I've seen you and George Bell focus on the same games and tournaments in ages. Oh, cricket media too. Sorry, Will. How does that affect relationships between journalists when you're all off covering different things? Yeah, I think it changes. Uh, to be fair, me and George both covered the England-West Indies uh, test series, I think. I think we both covered that. Uh, it just happened to be that he was out there and I was in a studio back in London uh, with TalkSport. We only sent out half the team. I mean, me and George have been best friends, oh, you know, but not best friends, very close friends. But, you know, I don't want to rank him. He's in the top seven. <laughs> um, top three on a good day. Top 20 on a bad day. Same as everyone. Uh you know, he's been one of my best mates for a long time and we'll be absolutely fine when we sit next to each other and start bullshitting next to each other as we usually do. But yeah, you, you do. I mean, I haven't been on any tours in a long time. So the only people I've really had to be able to talk cricket with other than you guys really on here is, um, you know, people on my podcast or, or on talk sport. So it's probably that is a little bit different to me than before. But I think that's always been the case. There, there are certain journalists that, that have always done more limited over stuff for varying reasons. Um, there are certain journalists who only like to do test matches. Then you've got your franchise journalists sort of coming in um, as well. Uh, so, yeah, it does, it does affect it. It's a very small community that actually travel a lot. Uh, I was talking to a journalist about this recently. Uh, she's writing a big piece about Dilip Premachandran. And, and I was trying to explain to her that, like, the ICC is the kind of the ICC events are kind of the only time we all see each other, and it's still, it's like twenty five people um, that that are genuinely on the circuit consistently uh, right across the game, and majority of those are probably England, um, and then you know a few Australian, a few Indian, and then you know, you know a couple of New Zealanders, a couple of South Africans, in you know, and, and the way that it sort of uh, peters out in that direction. So, yeah, I I, I mean I haven't I haven't. I was covering the England series. I, I, at the moment, I'm in a situation where I have to cover series based on who is paying me. I might not always be in that situation. If I get another job, um, if I, you know, uh, extend my business and those sorts of things, I'll be able to pick things um, and when I want to. But that's the situation I want to be in. Um, I don't, you know, I was work, great working for Craig Info and they let me do all the biggest series, but I'd like to do the things that I'm most interested in. Uh, and so I'll probably chop and change more, which might mean less traveling at times, just because if you go out to the ashes and the ashes is crap, you can't fly to South Africa suddenly. Or maybe you can, um, depending on how much money you have. 
Satchmo says, should the Tosh be changed so that it only applies to the first test of a series? After that, uh, with the choice alternating. No, I don't think so. I mean, if we're going to change the Tosh, I don't think that's where I would do it. I think that auction system uh, with the Tosh is really, really interesting um, of deciding uh, who goes first with a run penalty. Um, I like the idea of the away team doing it, although, you know, the early data doesn't suggest that that was a great system. Uh, I don't know if I need the alternating system, if we're being honest. Um, but but I see why why you would think that. Graham says, uh, all international bowlers regularly chucked. Uh, regularly checked for throwing. Chucked for throwing, I was going to say then. You could tell I've just put together an entire desk in five minutes before this broadcast. Um, uh I know Jack Leach was found to be slightly um, during a routine test, and I've heard Mohammed Afiz complain that he was only tested so often because he's a finger spinner. Yeah, so I've got what happened was late 2014, the ICC, the ICC was really worried about off spinners and their actions for a long time, and then when Srinivasan took over the game, uh, he basically he emboldened them. Uh, it depends on who you talk to. So people within the ICC say, "Oh, we we're going to do it anyway." People who know the ICC board say that Srinivasan basically phoned someone and they started checking out. I don't know what's true. Maybe Jeff Allardyce will tell us one day when he, when he quits. But uh, essentially what happened was at that point, um, we, we started checking all the off spinners, which is great. What we don't check, though, is the seam bowlers enough. Even the wrist spinners. I don't think many wrist spinners chuck, but, you know, some wrist spinners bowl quicker balls and you can certainly chuck on a quick ball. Uh, we also don't check enough left arm finger spinners as well. Jack Leach was one of the few. Um, so what should happen really is we should be at a point now where we can test in game uh, using either some sort of spatial tracking software or just sensors on the arm and it should be a normal no ball. Every bowler in the world should be tested regularly. And Mohamed Afiz is right that the finger spinners were uh, picked on. I think they were picked on because of what had been going on with them. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, it's like that doesn't really make any sense because there may have been many other seam bowlers who, uh, who should be tested. I don't think there should be any international bowlers who aren't routinely tested and realistically, as I said, should be tested in the game. Which batter in history would you nominate to bat for your life? Ask Satchmo. But they have to survive for 90 overs. Well, that's no good. Survive for 90 overs because I was going to pick um, Shahid Afridi because if you want someone to bat for your life, you want it to be fun. Uh, but if it's batting for 90 overs, uh, probably would be Steve Smith, wouldn't it? Who's your bowling attacker? You've got Marshall, Lilly, Imran, really Warren. Yeah, I think that's probably Steve Smith at the moment. You know, all-time Bradman would have been pretty ha handy. Um, Hanif Muhammad is probably another one uh, that you would be looking at for those, sort of, you know, if you, especially if you're looking at batting time. Um, but, yeah, any of those uh, seems quite solid to me. I suppose Jack Hobbs back in the day. Uh, James says, as your piece, The Ugly Australian, approaches its third birthday, do you think the recent and unexpected outbreak of Better Australia from the Australian team reflects a dying of the old ways? Or is it more so the personalities in, in the team, yeah, have changed? Okay, I, I think, and I've written about this a fair bit, James, that I think that Australia has changed a lot as a country, and I think you're seeing, if you look at the fact that Andrew McDonald is the coach, George Bailey is the chairman of selectors, Pat Cummins is the captain, I'm not sure you would have seen those three people in those positions um, in previous generations. I don't think they would have been seen as tough enough or hard enough or brutal enough. So I think there's a change all the way through. I don't think there's a big surprise that a lot of this has happened since James Sutherland has gone. Let's not forget that James Sutherland once said test cricket is not tiddlywinks and was actually supportive of what happened between Shane Warne and Marlon Samuels. I think under him, I mean, you know, from, from people I know who worked at Cricket Australia, the actual organisation was quite full on. Um, I certainly don't think you would have got away with what Cricket Australia did to their staff now uh, the way that you did in that previous era. So I think everything in cricket in Australia has changed. And I do think a newer generation is taking over as much as anything. I your, your comment about maybe the dormant side of it, I think that's still there. I do think, though, now when people are... When people are more like that, so the sort of old style, ugly Australian that I wrote in that article, I think there is now more people to put, they tell them to pull their head in. Whereas I think before, well, we know David Warner, it was encouraged. I mean, that's, David Warner's talked about that. He was encouraged to be that character. I don't think that's how the Australian team would do it anymore. That's not to say they won't sledge. It's not to say that they won't headbutt the line, um, their favourite phrase, but I don't think it's the same kind of, 
situation that it was earlier. AB says, I've really been enjoying watching CSK and MI Flounder this year. Strikes me that at least MI has enough young talent to turn things around next year in a potential Archer edition. For CSK, what changes would you make to ensure that the four-year cycle is in a complete flop? I'd have to have a better look, AB, honestly, at their cycle. I think that... I think that they thought that getting senior players in, which is their normal way of doing things, was going to work. And... I think getting senior pros in as a, as a general rule works, but some of their senior pros aren't of the level that they would want. I wonder also with Chennai how much of this is just form. So so we look at this and we go, oh, look how bad there is. You, you, I can't remember which team it was I was looking at. It might have been Rajasthan where their main six players were in form at the same time. And they were, well, they were number one on my power list. And you look at Chennai's, uh, you know, main six players and they, uh, you know, a good proportion of them are out of form, right? And we start to go, oh, they're a bad team and they're construct. Sometimes it's as simple as that. And over a long season, they will swing back around. I think maybe one of the best examples of this is Kolkata. I think Kolkata made some good moves um, in the second part of their season. But I also think a lot of their players just were in better form. And, Sometimes that swings around. As far as Mumbai goes, I, I do think, and I could be wrong here, I think Mumbai misread the mega auction this time. And I think what they thought was what we need to do is keep our major core and then get a bunch of younger players that we can develop up, which makes sense. But I think they misunderstood that the Shivam Dubey, Deepak Hod, Hooters, um, you know, some of these sorts of players who were more... Yeah, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th best player before are now your 6th, 7th, 8th best player. And they maybe could have invested in some of those players. But to be fair, those players went for a fortune, so you can see why they didn't. Uh, they might have got that wrong. Also, the whole Joffre Archer thing is obviously, you know, you're keeping a very, you're paying a lot of money to one player to not play him, right? And that's awkward. All right. Uh, Christopher says, if substitutes were allowed in three formats of the game, how would you like to see them implemented? I would like to see test cricket, have you have the ability to change your team uh, after each team has played one innings. Maybe three substitutions at most. Means if you've got any injuries, you can bring someone else in. Uh, if you've misread the pitch, you have the ability to, you know, uh, to bring that in. Uh, I don't think the three substitutions have to be fixed. It can be from a squad of 15 or 16, 17, 18, whatever you want it to be. Um, but you can only bring, th bring three players in. Uh, one day cricket. I haven't thought about it enough, Christopher, if we're being honest. Uh, and uh, T20, honestly, I would love it if it was just open season. Um, you know, got 30 players available. Um, everyone is a micro specialist. And we're seeing the absolute best bowler for any period of the game going up against the absolute best batter for any period. Uh, I don't think we'll ever go that far with T20 cricket, but maybe we will. Uh, what, did, what did Ashwin say the other day? It's a game for millennials. I'm not sure I am a millennial. I'm not sure really what I am. I'm not sure Ashwin's a millennial, is he? Actually, I read a really good article recently about how all, all those generation things are basically nonsense anyway. Um, but I think his point is that we are coming at it from a different viewpoint than perhaps people who are uh, older than us um, and T20 cricket is certainly for a different generation and we might change it quite violently. I mean, violently sounds ominous, doesn't it? But drastically, that also sounds ominous. Kennedy says, do you think test cricket suits better for building narratives than shorter form cricket? And do you think this should be the measurement for players, journalists, administrators working within cricket to build a more engaging experience for most, for both new and long fans? Okay, so the best part of this, Kennedy, is very, very simply that if you have test cricket and it goes for five days, the narrative is woven into it that you have you have seven hours of play, seven and a half hours of play <laughs> these days uh, with, with, your, with your break. So that's the full day. Then you have the conversations afterwards. Then you have, you know, the late night TV shows. You have, you know, early morning breakfast shows. You have the newspapers. You have the websites. You have the podcast now, the video channels, all this sort of stuff. Then you sweep into day two coverage, right? That narrative is very natural. A three-hour um, sport doesn't play that kind of narrative. And it's probably one of the reasons that cricket writing develops a lot better than other sports writing. 
T20 cricket's very hard for two reasons. One is it just doesn't have any of that. And most of the people who have been trained to write about cricket learnt to write on test cricket. A little bit of one-day cricket, but not, you know, certainly one-day cricket was never written on in the same level that test cricket was. The other problem is that it's really hard to write anything about a game of T20 cricket that people read. Um, you know, we, we experimented with stuff at Crick Info and, you know, if the game pops, then almost anything you put up works. But very few T20 games really pop because there's so many close games. If there's a controversy, you, you can write about the controversy. But a normal T20 game, just, just people don't read it. Uh, you might get more people watching it, but you don't get as many people reading it. What we worked on at Crick Info when I was there, and I don't know what they do now, was themes. You know, so you've either got a theme coming into a game. Uh, so I have, I, I might be doing a piece on Boovie for them and we'll probably try and schedule that as uh, on the day of a Sunrisers game. Um, and then if he does something in that game, that, that piece will then be, you know, uh, pushed again that night. Um, and the other thing I try and do is, you know, a theme happens in T20, uh, you know, so Ashwin retiring out is a good one. I did Wides at the Death the other day. Those seem to work better. There's a narrative over a full season, though, which I think is actually almost as strong as a, T as, a, as a test match or as a test series. I don't think people have quite worked that out yet, though. Uh, but I certainly do believe that there's really good narratives over a season. And it's also, if you have a look at my work, Kennedy, it's why I kind of do it over a longer period, even. Uh, you've got an extra question. Mm -mm. Is Mumbai Indians fielding five genuine number 11s? Ashwin, Bumrah, Bambi, Undercut, Mills. Yeah, I mean, that's quite interesting. The, the other team that's doing similar was I, Rajasthan when they, after they had their auction reached out to me and I said, look, I like a lot of what you've done here, but what, who on earth is going to be scoring for you at, at the death um, if your top order isn't still there, right? You, you're so reliant on your top four or five there, isn't it? Yeah, five. Um, to bat big. Uh, and we saw it the other day, they've already had to use Ashwin as a pinch hitter, which you kind of have to do. Uh, Mumbai is a very fair point as well. I mean, the, the strength of Mumbai before was that center core of the two Pandyas and Kyron Pollard. Uh, that, that gave you when they could all bowl, that gives you between, what, six to ten overs a game, uh, you know, in, you know in, in different variations, uh, even though, that you know, Pollard and Pandy are both right-arm seamers, they're very different kinds of right-arm seamers. That was a real strength, and they've gone from that to the opposite. Honestly, watching, they had five special spells the other day and they all got smashed, Kennedy, so I'm not sure if that's the biggest problem at the moment. Uh, I, I do think they might have overinvested in some younger talent. Although you look at that bowling line up there, you know, Ashwin Boomer, Thampi, Unadkat, Mills, they're not particularly young, are they? Uh, but it, maybe I'm, I'm more looking at the overall squad there. But um, uh, yeah, I'm not sure that's an ideal uh, lineup. But I have seen teams do it before. It, but you are very dependent on your top order. You see that more in international cricket sometimes where teams just can't find genuine all-rounders. We've seen Australia do, go in with uh, similar lineups to this, maybe not quite as extreme. Uh, there's another team that did it too. Was it Pakistan maybe at one stage before they went all in on their all-rounders? Ian is asking about the Paris Kadka podcast. If you haven't heard that, Paris Kadka, absolute titan of associate cricket, but also just a really intelligent, passionate man. Uh, worth going back and listening to that podcast. He says, how, how far do you think Nepalese cricket could go? The population is about on par with Australia. I don't expect them to reach Australian heights, but with long-term strategy investment, what is the ceiling for them? So Nepalese cricket domestically is probably the strongest domestic cricket we've seen since Bangladesh, maybe. It might even be stronger than Bangladesh in some ways. Obviously, not as many people. Just that people in Nepal want to go and watch cricket. They do get good crowds. That does bring government interference at times. They have had problems with their board. I don't know if cricket has swept all of Nepal. But the parts of Nepal that it has swept have certainly gone all in on it. Um I think you might have a situation a bit like Afghanistan where you suddenly, they're not really known for that many other sports, you know, so cricket is a chance for them to, you know, to invest in um, locally. So with that in mind, some things can happen. Uh, I just think, I just think they probably need maybe the sort of golden generation that Ireland or Afghanistan had. 
and things can move very, very quickly there. But they've certainly, I'd say they've had talented players before. They're producing talented players now, but they didn't make the last World, Cup, uh, World T20 qualifiers. That's a bad sign, I think, for their cricket overall. But if you're asking me how far they go, you know, depending on how cricket goes, there's absolutely no reason why they couldn't be a semi-regular team in the World Cup and why they eventually couldn't be a, a test team as well because they have the passion for the game. They clearly have the athletes for the game. Uh, that's The government will support them. Uh, and I think going ahead, if it becomes the major sport in Nepal generally, then, you know, people will back it. You keep making fun of the idea that uh, that Leicestershire or Derbyshire could attract global interest, but isn't that a bit reductive? After all, Leicestershire City uh, Football Club is probably worth far more than any I- IPL franchise. I don't think that's true. I don't think. Uh, I don't think. Um, Mumbai, I mean, Mumbai is worth far more than than anything in Leicestershire. As I, um, Leicestershire has a population that's bigger than the West Indian. Surely, it's the quality and presentation of the competition that attracts the audience, not how big the team's nominal catchment area is. No, it's about market. Premier League is a huge market. You could drop in a team from Slough, right? You put enough money into it and have enough success and people will follow it. They're not following it because it's from Slough. No one overseas knows what Leicestershire is or knows what Leicester is um, in this case, right? Premier League is what they know about well, right? You need to make a, a, a dynamic product and you can drop any teams in. The perfect example of that is the Green Bay Packers, right? Uh, Green Bay's probably got less people than Leicester, would be my guess. But it's the NFL and they were very successful. What we're talking about here, though, is I know what teams in Leicester and, or Leicestershire and Derby you know, are, are doing. I know what money they're dealing with. I know what kind of facilities they're dealing with. I know what they're paying their coaches. Mate. I mean, sorry, Will, but come on, right? If, if you're talking about what can be done, um, they're a long way away. I've said before, I've got no problem with the, um, uh, you know, with, uh, well, 24 teams playing in county cricket and having eight teams in each division. I've got no problem with that. But you have to, at a certain point, these teams have to become successful. The reason that these teams aren't successful isn't an accident, Right. How many championships have Derby, you know, or Derbyshire uh, won in, ter- in, in, in county cricket? Leicester just won the Premier League, right? Uh, w- what are we comparing here? Leicester have had six, some success, and I think that they're doing some interesting thing with young players. The problem is, who are the best two young players they've come up with recently? James Taylor and Stuart Broad, who both left. And Derbyshire, if you go through the history of Derbyshire cricket, how many England greats have they ever had? Bob Taylor, if you're a big fan of wicket-keeping. Mike Hendrick, well, in 150 years? There's a problem, Will, right? And it feels like you're trying to defend it rather than actually look at how to fix it, right? I make fun of those counties because I know how they run. I've had chats with them. I've been involved with them. And I've been involved with IPL teams. The difference of level. You know, even Scotland is more professional than some of those smaller counties. Ireland is more professional than far a lot of the counties, right? We're talking about here about infrastructure. We're talking about the league in general. We're talking about the fact that the county system was not set up to be a TV product. It was not set up to be a um, a breeding ground for for English international cricketers. And those are the two things that you need to be successful right now. I don't I don't care if Beckham has a team or. Hastings has a team. That's not the problem. The problem is the way this this is currently being run. And it's not accidental that Derbyshire have struggled to make very good players over a very long period of time. All right. Thank you, everyone, for your Patreon questions. Let us get into the questions in the Spotify Live. He can't see you there, mate. Yeah, hey. How you doing? Oh, good. So my question is on... uh... Speaking about people and cultures, so uh, this came out because of your uh, podcast with, about Clark, Michael Clark, and uh, one of your articles on Bangladesh's fans. So mm-hmm. on, uh, on Clark, you said he had no uh, very few views to, or something to that effect, and he had an ambition to uh, be a big name. And with Bangladesh, it was mm-hmm. about uh, Rami Zaraja's comments in the maturity level of fans and how lower, lower, lower ranked teams were portrayed. So, hope that gives you a reminder, mm. sort of. 
but and i read a piece a little while ago it was very self aware but it was it was like a commentary on a famous cricketer and he was villainized because it was political he was kind of his big name thing and uh, he actually did a cultural analysis type of thing on this player and you know he even talked about how people need fat uh, figures or something like that and try to connect it all together so uh, that made me get a lot of mixed feelings so in in as individual children they necessarily have a quality control or a quality assessment thing to do a thinking process and it's kind of each to their own but you have an intrinsic in- interest uh, to these topics so how do you think it should be handled so that it is somewhat insightful or uh, helpful so with michael clark what i was really trying to do there was explain to well everyone even australians but certainly to non-australians why michael clark wasn't embraced and one of the reasons was that michael clark had an airbrushed image of himself and even though australia is a little bit like that but doesn't like to admit it maybe it was a mirror michael clark was holding up but if you compare him to shane warne and doggy bollinger who let their flaws come out right michael clark went the other way and i wanted to explain why the fan base didn't get michael clark and i thought that was an important part of the michael clark story and i knew it was something that michael clark would never be able to talk about himself and uh you know i knew his book wasn't going to cover that right the the other side with the bangladesh one that to me felt like a really big issue that was always online that no one had ever talked about and i'm one of the things that i'm really interested in is the way that fan bases mature and change so you know if you look at look at australia's reaction in bodyline um uh to 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 what happened you look at new zealand's reaction to the underarm ball you put both of those things in modern culture and i think it would be it would be different there would still be controversies but they would be different and it's because of the way those fan bases were maturing right so the underarm was at a point where new zealand were finally felt they were almost on an even pegging of Australia after years of Australia refusing to play them and New Zealand being afraid of playing them at times as well right and bodyline was at a period where Australia finally thought they could dominate England and then they thought England changed the rules of cricket you know ch- changed the playing conditions play- changed the way it was played on them pulled the ro- you know pulled the the blanket out from under them and i thought the bangladesh rummy's raja one was a really interesting moment in time where you had a commentator who was quite openly speaking down about bangladeshi cricket and cricketers at times and you had a fan base that was rising up and what i really wanted to what i really wanted to do was put that into a historical context so that in 30 or 40 years time we can remember that as a as a key part of the uh bangladesh journeys you have to learn how to be a fan does that make sense right Okay, so even now that the, the ramirajah piece was what, four or five years ago and it, looking back on it 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 is kind of the ambiguous let's say because you haven't necessarily characterized him you still try to analyze what he said and what his feelings were and to some extent um uh, try to make sense of it at least if not if rationalizing is the wrong word to use so ramis raja isn't the important part of that ramis raja is no one right i i know he's going on to be someone ramis raja is a random commentator what i was trying to uh, look at historically was what was happening within bangladesh cricket fans that they were finding their voice that they felt like they could question a pakistani uh cricketer who's commentating for the icc that they felt that someone needed to take up their arms that someone needed to say that that's what i'm doing but you're wrong that i was ambiguous about ramis raja i let his own words do it he basically said that they needed to grow up i let him be the idiot in that particular moment right but 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 the piece is not about him i don't care about ramis raja right the the piece is about Bangladesh cricket you you have to it's really important that people learn how to be fans and that develops and changes over time different fan bases become different you know they start in one area they go somewhere else like the the Australian cricket fan was always more aggressive but then it got uber aggressive through the 80s and 90s and now it's got quite placid um you know it's changed so fan bases change your team changes your population changes your community changes or you know the, the way the sport is viewed is changed so in bangladesh before there was almost a we're happy to be there element to bangladesh cricket right we can't believe we're here we were we were probably promoted ac- almost accidentally it could have been us it could have been scotland we got promoted on the back of a game against pakistan 
Uh, and now we're losing all the time, but we're happy to be here. And then they're like, man, we can actually win. And we're going to win a little bit. And we've made the quarterfinals of the World Cup and we deserve more respect. And we certainly deserve more respect from what they saw as a major figure and what I see as a minor figure, uh, Remis Raja. And that is an important moment in Bangladesh cricket history for me, fan history, right? Where, and, and you saw it, you saw it come through in a more fractured way when, you know, the MS Dhoni, when Mustafiza came through and that, you know, the severed heads and of the cutters and all that sort of stuff that they did. Uh, but, but then you see it come through with the Ramesh Raja stuff where a lot of what they were saying was fair. In fact, I went into that thinking Ramesh Raja was going, yeah, I think they've just mis misconstrued what I've said. And instead he said the opposite. You go, you know, they need to grow up. You know, they need to mature as a fan base or whatever he said, which is true of all fan bases. But um, it was a silly thing to say when you've just been told that you're talking down to them. But essentially that is, that is what we were trying to do in, well, that was what I was trying to do in that piece. But those things are really important. Why Michael Clark for the first 70% of his career wasn't accepted in Australia and why Bangladesh is, is developing is a really, those are important narratives. That's why I follow them. Right. So you talked about how you expressed them. Like, and then there's the other side to it is on how you perceive them and how your own uh, experiences with them as players, teams, cultures, societies, whatever. So how do you kind of review that and put things into perspective? I suppose when you're looking at those sorts of issues, you're looking at the society itself. Uh, where is that nation at the moment? So in Australia's case with Michael Clark, Michael Clark was perhaps the face of Australia before Australia was ready to admit that Michael Clark was the face of Australia. We still wanted it to be Leighton Hewitt um, and, and, and Steve Waugh um, and those sorts of figures, although Leighton Hewitt probably went a bit sour, but uh, or a Pat Rafter um, uh, type of person. And uh, then we had, you know, a brand come through like Michael Clark. So you put in that there. And with Bangladesh, it's a similar thing of, I mean, I've studied fan culture and the history of cricket nations, you know, from, well, from Australia all the way through to, um, uh, well, I suppose you could almost put Nepal as the last one that I've, I've started, you know, paying close attention to, but Scotland, Ireland, Afghanistan, um, all those, those ones, you start to see patterns and you start to see the point where, they go from happy to be there to furious at any infraction. Um, you know, and I suppose one of the best ones was, you know, the, the Sri Lanka one with Murali, right? Like all things considered, Murali probably did have an illegal action and probably not, not consistently. I think we know, but through Murali, we learned a lot more about actions and he probably changed the game for the better. Certainly the way that we treated throwers. But there were probably, there were certainly deliverers he bowled that he went over 15 degrees. I don't think there's any doubt of that, uh, you know, that that happened. And if we had general sensors on him, that would have been fine. He would have been called for a no ball every now and again, and we would have all moved on. But we weren't ready for any of that. But if you look at the reaction to that, you can certainly see that that was Sri Lanka finding their voice, right? Sri Lankan fans, Sri Lankan cricket, uh, Sri Lanka's captain standing up and going, no, we're going to do this. We're, we're going to fight back here. And, uh, you know, you see those sorts of moments happen all the way through cricket and you, you know, they all, they all come in different ways and shapes and forms. Um, but it's a really common pattern. <laughs> it's a, it's a really, really common pattern. You can go back to Fred Spofforth charging into the change room and, and, and abusing WG Grace, right? It goes, it goes back that far. We're talking what the fourth or fifth test, maybe the, I can't remember off the top of my head, maybe the sixth test ever played, where Australia went, wait a minute, who do you think you are to, to, to act like this in front of us? You may be a god in England, but to us you're another cricketer and, uh, w you know, you've rattled something that, that has changed. And what WG Grace did that day was probably emboldened Australian cricket. And you see those moments over and over again in different cricket cultures. Um, you, see, you see Jeremy Coney... And Glenn Turner out on the field basically go, these Australians, we can, we can out-strategize them. They're, they're basic. We can be better than them, right? And then you see the fans get involved. And it's generally, it starts on the field. But it's, I, I, you can start to see these patterns again and again when you follow the history of cricket culture. Um, and, uh, you know, India after 1983 is, is another perfect example of, wait a minute, we beat the West Indies at Lords right? You know, and the cricket culture changed. Before that, Indians were really fans of cricket. After 83, they become fans of Indian cricket, 
right? Th those generations come through and they're different than the generations before them. And you could say the same, that, that probably similar things happen with other countries, but it was probably a little bit before our time. Um, but, but we saw that with India and we've seen similar things with Pakistan and, uh, and, and Sri Lanka. Uh, and, you know, we, we will see similar things probably with Irish fans coming forward and, um, and uh, you know, other ones. Th this, is, this is how it works. So when you're, when you're asking me what I'm seeing, I'm seeing 150 years of cricket history. And then I want to distill that because someone has to write that. Someone has to tell people that this happened, that this culture changed at that time. And it might sound silly that the person they were calling out was at that time a semi-famous cricket commentator, but that's a big deal for them, right? Because they were part of Pakistan. Um, and this is a guy who, you know, was, was a major Pakistani player who was talking about them in a way they didn't like and for them to rise up. But really, the real story is that they were willing to call people out in general. It doesn't matter if it's Ramiz Raja or, you know, anyone, right? Those are the sorts of things that I think should be chronicled. Thanks for your question, mate. Cheers. Jocks, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Beautiful. What's your question, mate? Uh, yes. So I had a question about um, Night Watchmen. I love seeing a Night Watchman come out to bat. And I think it's, you know, an incredibly cricket kind of phenomena to send out like a useless batsman to protect like better batsmen but it, for me it, it doesn't really make sense in the modern game like i don't quite understand why a good frontline batsman shouldn't just be able to see out like 20 minutes or 15 minutes at the end of a day um so i was wondering if you knew at all like where it came from and like what the tactical value of it was and why it is that teams still do it <laughs> or is it like a weird cricket hangover thing I can tell you where it came from. It came from uh, rich amateurs in England not wanting to lose their wicket at the end of the day. <laughs> Send out a professional bowler to do your job for you, right? I mean, that's literally what it is. It's a terrible class. And it makes no nonsense. sense to me in the modern game that you'd send out someone who is, well, not a batsman to try and see out 20 minutes with a new ball after you've lost the wicket or something. Like, surely the batter yeah. is, is best placed to, to do that. So I was... Like, why do teams still do it then? I think it is a hangover. Um, I think that there is a small tactical advantage to it if you have someone who's good at it, right? So if you have someone like Jason Gillespie or uh, Jack Leach or, um, you know, someone whose batting is probably not particularly handy to you in any other position, right, if that makes sense. I, I know occasionally tailenders can be quite handy, but as a general rule, um, if they're, if they're going to bat at 10 or 11, you're not going to get much out of them other than a bit of a hang around. And if you think that on average they should be able to face, I, I don't know, 10 to 20 balls, you're probably getting, you're, you're getting a bonus out of them in that particular situation. Where it falls down is that if the conditions are bad, then it's going to be much harder for a tail ender, <laughs> right? And my memory, and I could be wrong of this, uh, mate, but my memory is that before breaks is actually the hardest time to get a wicket. And I think, I can't remember if that holds up at the end of the day's play as well, but it certainly holds up before lunch and before tea. Uh, at the end of the day's play might be slightly different, but you, you could make, you, if you're going to use them at the end of the day's play, wouldn't you also then use them before lunch or tea? Is that not also a similar dangerous spot? Yeah, and I, I don't know, what I always find really weird is that they, they make it through to the end of the day and then you have this like really paradoxical situation in the morning where you basically have a batsman that the batting team doesn't especially want there and the bowling team really doesn't want there. And it's like, why on, on day three of like a, on, on, a, on a sunny flat track or something, mm. is there a, a, a specialist number 10 like batsman here chewing up time and, and chewing up balls? I think if it was used like 25% of the time, right? And I don't know how often it is used, but if it was used 25% of the time, for that, to me, would be tactical, right? And then we would be looking at teams making very clear decisions based on the situation, the batters that they have in their team, the tail that they have, maybe where the, where, what the state of the ball is. Uh, because, you know, there, there might be situations in certain parts of the world where it's like, if we can get through the next 10 or 15 overs of this ball uh, and with someone who just doesn't have a backlift, everyone else will be able to cash in. That's a good tactical move. The batters who do it automatically, for me, I don't 
if I was an analyst for a first class team, and I've never been, I've never done it, so uh, I've never been in this situation. But if I was an analyst for a first class team, I think I'd be having a lot of chats with the captain and the coach about why this particular player thinks he needs a human shield every time, <laughs> every, every time things are going wrong. Yeah. Just following up from that, actually, I was wondering what you thought maybe about um, reversed batting orders. So I, it's something that came up kind of tongue-in-cheek on the commentary of the England-West Indies mm. tests, where, like, particularly in Grenada, where it seemed to be, like, really difficult up front yeah. and then really flatten out as the day went on. Um, and I think Gower mentioned on the commentary, uh, uh, you know, uh, oh, they should reverse the batting order and, and, you know, send Leach and Wokes out to open and have... You know, Root, Stokes, et cetera, et cetera, come, come in between like six and 10, basically. And I was wondering if you thought, like, you know, if that is just a tongue in cheek joke, or do you think it's something that could work on certain surfaces at certain times? Yeah, I think that particular, which pitch was that? I'm trying to remember. It was the Grenada pitch, the last test. Yeah. So that particular surface, did, is that the one Jack Leach made the runs on? Yeah, Jack Leach and Mahmoud did in the, in the first inning. Yeah, so that particular surface, my memory was him and Kemar Roach made runs, and neither of them have very big backlifts. And I had a theory that it was probably a pitch that you could dead bat on, right? Uh, which uh, I know part of the reason was that they didn't face the new ball. I would have had no problem with Jack Leach opening up with one of the England openers in that case, uh, probably Lee's. Uh, and seeing if they could get through 15 or 20 overs because I can't remember when the pitch started evening out, but it was between the 25 and 35 over mark um, uh, where it, so that pitch was so weird. The new ball did a little bit, then it would die off, um, then it would get tough, and then it completely died. It's like the ball, the ball just completely acted weird. But if you could get through that new ball bit and then have your – have Zach Crawley and Joe Root and uh, who's batting three in that series? Uh, uh, that's a very good question. Root was batting three. Oh, Root was three. So Lawrence was four, wasn't he? Yeah. So if you if you have Crawley, Root, and Lawrence coming in between the 20th and the 40th over, and you could have also thrown Ben Folks up as well. So you could have you could have opened with Leach, had Lees open with him, have Folks or Wokes come in at three to try and get to that period where, and then you've got set batters when it gets a little bit more difficult. And then as it eases off, you've maybe got Root and everyone else coming in, uh, you know, six, seven, eight, nine. You probably don't want them coming in as late as 10 or anything like that. So I wouldn't want to, that's why I wouldn't want to send too many people up. But that particular pitch, from a tactical point of view, I'd be shocked if the England analyst didn't suggest something like that. Absolutely shocked. It would have been huge for England to try it. I don't think there are that many pitches where you see that sort of stuff, but you do sometimes see pitches like that where I think the absolute best thing you could do now would be to send out someone who's just going to dead bat the ball for 10 or 15 overs. Um, or, you know, you sometimes see it in England where uh, that that period between, what, the 15th and the 30th over where it's hooping around everywhere and you want to send out a tail ender with soft hands. I I don't. You know, if, if it's that specific role and you know they might fail, because the thing is, it's very easy for Jack Leach to come in in the 60th over when the fl- pitch is already flat and bat, right? And that's the big thing with Chris Wokes. You know, the, the old Ben Jones column about Chris Wokes batting at, at first drop. Okay, so there's two things that Ben Wokes is going to... Uh, ben Wokes. Uh, um, uh, Chris Wokes is going to have to deal with um, in that situation, right? The first thing he's going to have to deal with is that the ball is going to be pinging around everywhere and he's not used to that. That's going to bring his average down. If he averages 30 in test cricket, he's going to average less if he bats at first drop or reopens. The second thing is that when he usually comes in, the bowlers are tired and the uh, pitch, the pitch is, uh, the ball's softer. So it's harder to bounce him out. You've got to factor in all those things when you send those guys up the order. That doesn't mean particularly that those sorts of players can't work on occasion. Yeah. I, I saw in your pinch hitters video, you were talking about a lot of the time when bowlers are promoted up the order to do a specific job, they even subconsciously start to think like batsmen mm. and, and, th- and therefore yeah. get out or chew up balls. Do you think you'd see a similar thing in first-class cricket? Yeah. Like no. If you were to try this kind of like batting by role, regardless of whether you're like traditionally a tail-ender or whatever. You said in club cricket. I mean, you see it in every level of cricket. If you send someone in at first drop... They get their first drop mindset on, right? It's we're so trained to believe that these positions make sense. 
I remember I, I was about 15 or so and my, uh, my, my senior team, I thought I was playing as a bowler and they sent me out to bat first drop and I thought I was in as a, ta- as a, as a night watcher and I didn't ask, I just assumed, right? And I went out there and I smashed like 60 or 70. And when I, when I went out, um, the, the captain came up and he's like, I knew you could do it. And I went, well, you sent me up as a night watcher. And he's like, no. And I went, ah. Oh. If, I, if I'd known I was actually batting as number three, I wouldn't have gone out there and batted like that. <laughs> I would never have batted like that. Like I was dancing down the wicket um, like a madman, uh, you know, and hooking every short ball. And, and I think there is that part of it. And that's where, that's where I would have focused more on Jack Leach, only because Jack Leach almost doesn't have the ability to bat like an opener or a first drop, right? <laughs> like he's so and, – and that's why – Jack Leach, Jason Gillespie, I'm trying to think of some others um, that we've seen in, in, in history of those sort of uh, – Holgaard was probably another very good one as well. Paul Harris, those sort of real dead bat guys where there's almost no back lift, they are quite handy in different kinds of situations, right? The ball's pinging around. You know, being able to put them in in certain situations might actually help, whereas Chris Wokes probably – He's too good yeah, of a batsman. If he specialised as a batter – there's no doubt that he would think a little bit more like a batter and he has too many, he has the shots of a batter. Right. So, yeah. Um, I certainly think in those sorts of situations, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go down that, but th- that's an, uh, you know, some, uh, excellent question, mate. Thanks so much for that. Great. Thanks a lot. All right. We've got a couple in the text. Siddharth says, who's the second best cricketer of all time? Uh, obviously Bradman, number one, my nominees, Sobers, Callis, Imran and Marshall. See Imran for 10 years. But the other first 10 years of his career weren't particularly spect- spectacular. Callis is good, but did really bowl part-time overs. Sobers is good, and his record doesn't look as good because... His bowling record, I should say, doesn't look as good because if he just stayed as a left-arm seamer, he probably averages, you know, high 20s um, and, uh, you know, doesn't have to bowl left-arm wrist spin and left-arm finger spin. I probably disregard Marshall just because as good as he is, I think other bowlers have been on a similar level to him. Um, like if you look at Imran's record, it's not that that dissimilar to Marshall's um, and averaged over 30 with the bat. I probably think it's Imran Khan in my heart of hearts, but the flexibility that Sobers gave you and the, and the fact that he was a frontline batter and bowler his entire career but then he averages 35. Oh, it's so tough. It's so tough. Yeah, I think if you if you pin me down to it, I'm gonna just go Sobers over Imran. With Callis, obviously not that far behind either. But I'm just gonna go Sobers just because he was such an all-rounder that he gave you the ability to bat, um, bowl, and field in so many different ways. Uh, we've never really had another cricketer like that, and I don't think we ever will who can consistently do that. Obviously. You know, we've had players like Tony Gregg who can do a little bit of both. and um, uh, But Tony Gregg wasn't the athlete and wasn't the top order player uh, or the destructive force that, that, that Sobers was with the bat. Um, and more of a good fifth bowling option rather than uh, a frontline bowler the way that Sobers was. Um, but we, it's, just, it's just the all, all, all-round ability of Sobers is so dynamic that I'm willing to forgive the fact that he probably averaged high 30s when he bowled his spin. And if he wasn't, you know, it's one of those things. He was so talented that he could probably average high 30s when he bowled his spin, which actually tells you, again, what a phenomenal thing player he was, being that that was his, probably his fourth best skill in cricket behind fielding and batting and bowling uh, and bowling seam. All right. Johnny says, would an all-time all-rounders 11 beat an all-time specialist? And would it differ in different formats? I suspect the all-rounders would win in T20. The specialists might win in test matches. So... Who have we got? Who opens the batting for the all-time all-rounders 11? Is it Vinu Mankad and Shane Watson? Um, who bats three? Sobers. Okay, that's not too bad. Uh, Callis and Sobers at three and four. Keith Miller at five. Imran Khan at... So many bowling options in that team. So you can have Sobers, Imran Khan, Kapil Dev, Ian Botham, Aubrey Faulkner... Richie Benno, maybe. I'm trying to think of another better spinning all-rounder. Uh, Ravi Jadeja. It just goes on and on and on, doesn't it? I kind of think that the all-time, all-rounder 11 beats the specialist 11 just because no matter what the best specialist 11 you put up against, there's a type of bowler that probably can bother them in that all-rounder um, bracket. 
the openers is the only one I'd have to think about. There's, there's probably better opening all rounders that I can't think of. Uh, Bob Simpson could bowl a bit of leg spin, couldn't he? Um, I'm not sure that you'd say he's an opener. Um, but that's probably the only weakness I can see in that team. But you're batting down to a number 11. So so who's who's the worst number 11 that we could put in? You know, Hadley? Pretty good team, isn't it? Jeez, you guys are going nuts on this. Uh, but yeah, on T20 and one-day cricket, I certainly, I think the all-rounders would probably have an edge. But I think the all-rounders could win altogether. Uh, but it would be a pretty close game. We might have to, it might be the sort of thing you might have to simulate. It's not particularly easy to organize 11 bowlers, although they'd all be fresh. That one's going to stick in my head for a while, Johnny. Adia says, why aren't Mumbai scoring runs? Uh, did Sam's uh, did Sam's paid price for their weak batting? Well, they don't have many batters, but I honestly believe it's more of a form thing. Um, I've said that before. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I'd be shocked if they don't make runs all the way through. Uh, but it is a shallow batting lineup, and we've seen them, Rajasthan, uh, very shallow batting. We see um, Punjab with very shallow bowling. You know, we're seeing some bowling and batting lineups that are a bit more stretched. Part of that is just because it's it's a you know there's more teams and they're a little bit weaker. And we've gone away from the super IPL strength of eight teams, um, and so teams have stretched out. And perhaps you know Mumbai paying all that money for Jofra Archer hasn't helped them. Um, they don't really seem to have. They don't seem to believe in their in their fourth um, overseas player, for instance. Uh, that's a huge problem, I think, at the moment. Uh, Ross English has said Wilfred Road opens for the all-rounders. Yeah, he's right. Um, you could, maybe you have a Shastri as well. Um, so there's probably a couple of guys there. Whether you know whether uh, Shastri's bowling probably quite lines up for it. But um, yeah, and you've still got Shane Watson as well, uh, and Bob Simpson, and 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 Vinu Mankat, Mankat, although his batting's maybe a bit weak for for opening and that sort of a team. Uh, but that's it. That's all the questions we have for today. IPL starting. So huge thanks to everyone for coming on uh, as usual. Remember, you can support us on uh, Spotify. Um, what support us on Patreon. That's the place to support us. We're really getting quite close to moving to a third podcast a week. We're just trying to pick up some more advertising and some more Patreon. But we've been getting great Patreon support of recent times. And remember, you can ask questions at the start of this chat. And, you know, just a huge shout out to Manscaped. 20% off if you use the code REDINCA, all one word. And you can get your Lawnmower 4.0 and all the other cool man manscaping products to scape your manhood and uh you know huge shout out also to bodyline t-shirts for their t-shirts and everyone on patreon and also those people who use buy me a coffee as well honestly when it comes to this podcast and the youtube channel and the email all the different things i have it's great if you can support us with money but the more times you share the content the better it is for us the more people who subscribe allows us to get more people we can get better guests in uh, we can improve the technology get you know get pr better production all these sorts of things help. For instance, the reason I was disassembling my desk today is because I was about to reassemble my new desk, which was paid for essentially by the Patreon supporters. So huge shout out to everyone. Let's go watch this IPL game. I've got to find my iPad actually and set that up while I set up my new desk. But just a huge shout out to everyone. Thanks for coming on uh, to the Spotify Lives. And just uh, thank you all for coming on, for listening and for sharing and for everything else. But for me, it's bye and I'll talk to you next time.